<clears throat> kind of reminds me of the last time I went snow skiing, you know, down dodging those bolts. No, no. <laughs> Uh, well, good morning once again, you guys. Uh, um, uh, let, let me mention one more thing. Uh, don't forget that tomorrow night, uh, 7 p.m., is the longest night service. Uh, tremendous uh, blessing to those that have lost loved ones, not only this past year, but in recent years. Tremendous, uh, powerful, encouraging time. You can tune in uh, to that uh, live on Facebook at 7 p.m. Uh, and then also shortly after sunset, and maybe even tonight as well, uh, the Christmas star will appear. That conjunction, uh, was it Jupiter and Saturn, I think, together, um, that they, they think maybe have, have actually been what the wise men tuned into. But the last time this, ca- this happened uh, was 850 years ago. And so it, and it's going to be a number of years, not that long before it happens again, but it's going to be a long time uh, before it does happen again. So take the opportunity to look up in the sky and uh, observe the Christmas star uh, this year, unique opportunity. <clears throat> well, I'm uh, very uh, grateful, as always, for our worship team, for Jesse, our, our tech folks back in the back uh, as well. <clears throat> uh, and, and what a blessing it's been to have uh, our guests all this month, our, our string uh, quartet, quintet, and or whatever. <laughs> I, didn't, I actually didn't count. And um, boy, what, a, what a beautiful job. And, and joining them this morning is our own Noah Markham. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, did, did a <clears throat> fantastic job. We appreciate that very, very much. How many of you like Christmas music? Like Christmas music? Okay, let me ask you this. What is your very favorite Christmas song? Now, it could be a carol, it could be Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger. I mean, this is not a spiritual test, okay? Uh, what is your very favorite Christmas song? i tell you what, on the count of three, everybody tell me the name of your favorite Christmas song. You ready? One, two, three. That's amazing. That's my favorite one, too. <laughs> oh. Did you know that of the all-time top 10 highest grossing songs in the world, I don't mean songs that, as in that they're gross, but high as in that they make a lot of money, um, the top 10 highest grossing songs of all time Three of them are Christmas songs, Christmas songs. One of them was written in 1932, the words by a man named Haven Gillespie, and music by Fred Coots. Gillespie wrote the lyrics in about 15 minutes on the back of an envelope. Uh, it took Coots, I think, about 45 minutes to come up with a melody. Uh, this song has made $25 million, and their family still own the copyright. The name of the song? Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> Santa Claus is coming to town. The second one, you'll probably think of this one, I, I bet, but this one was written in 1945 in the middle of a terribly hot summer in Los Angeles by a 19-year-old jazz musician who said as he was writing, he was trying to stay cool by thinking of cool as in temperature, thinking of cool things such as Jack Frost nipping at your nose. The Christmas song, the Christmas song, right? again, written in 1945 by Mel Torme. It's made $20 million. Before he died, he referred to that song as his, he said, that's my annuity. <laughs> Believe that. Uh, well, those two actually pale in comparison to the number one grossing Christmas song of all time. It was actually written by a Jewish 
Russian immigrant in 1940. It has made over $36 million. Anybody want to guess which one that is? I'm dreaming of a... <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. That's all right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Irvin <laughs> uh, Berlin was the author of that song. Again, $36 million. And just for the fun of it, you know what the number one grossing song of all time is? Written in eight, not Christmas song. This is the number one grossing song of all time. Written in 1893 by the Hill Sisters for their kindergarten class so that they would have something that they could sing to their fellow students when it was their birthday. It's the happy birthday song. Over $50 million that song is made, and they have the, the copyright until 2030. Of course, the original Hill Sisters are no longer around, but their, their family still is. Music. I mean, it is so powerful, is it not? So powerful. I mean, I've seen instances in our own family where an individual with Alzheimer's, as Julie sat down at the piano and started playing some hymns over one of the holidays seasons, all of a sudden that person perked up and eyes opened wide and began to sing the lyrics to that song. Never forgot the words that were learned even when this individual was so much younger in spite of the, of the dementia that took place. Songs, he emit such emotions from within us. I mean, you hear a song and you can remember exactly what you were feeling when that song was popular. Again, very, very powerful. Songs have the power to move us in so many different ways. <clears throat> and so I suspect that it was with great intention that when the former fisherman turned disciple named John tells his Christmas story, that he chose to begin with what many scholars believe was one of the very first hymns of the early church. Now, we don't have the melody, but we do have the lyrics. <laughs> so think of this as one of the very first Christmas songs that was ever written. Now, again, we have no idea how the melody went, but we do have the lyrics, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Now, we're not going to do the Baptist thing, you know, where we just do the first and the fourth verse, okay? We're going to do the Presbyterian thing. We're going to read all the verses in the process. So here we go. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, the, he was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's referring to John the Baptist here. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light. That gives light, to everyone, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. 
the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John, again, John the Baptist, testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we come to your word this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds that we might be able ready to receive that which your spirit wants to speak to us about through your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, once again, that incredibly, incredible, powerful opening, opening statement, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now, if that reminds you of the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, that's intentional. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, he, he, gives, he begins with the genealogy of Christ, and he goes all the way back to Abraham. You read the Gospel of Luke, he gives his genealogy, and he traces it all the way back to Adam. John goes all the way back to eternity past. He refers to Jesus as the eternal word. That phrase, in the beginning, means that he was before all else, that there never has been a time when he was not. He was in the beginning. As John writes, Jesus, the word was with God. Now, the scholars tell us that this is a difficult um, uh, translation, a difficult expression to properly translate, but that it literally means the word, the word was towards God or face to face with God. The word was actually used of, of uh, two kings who were in, having a conversation together, and if one was shorter than the other, they'd give that one a, a pillow so that he could sit, so that they would be at equal level as they spoke, as they talked together. Jesus coexisted co-equally with God, not as a separate God, but as one. This is the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, not separate, but as one. In the beginning, John writes, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, friends, many people have never heard this Christmas story, have they not? They've never heard this story. I mean, a lot of people know something about the, that starlit night when this special baby boy was born to this peasant a Jewish couple, Mary and Joseph, who were struggling, and, and they know they could tell you something about angels and shepherds and wise men and all that sort of thing, but many have never, never heard that this special baby that was born that night was the God through whom all things were made, all things created. The Creator became a creature, a human being. But why, why does God, why does, why does John refer to Jesus as the Word? 
the word. What's the significance of that? Well, John the fisherman turned disciple is doing some very, very deep sea fishing here. I, I'm, I'm, I am not going to come close to, to doing this justice. I mean, yeah, this is a, one of those passages that as a pastor you approach with great fear and trembling because, again, there's just no way to do it full justice. But, but let me take just a little shot at it here. In the original language, this word, the word word, is the Greek word Lagos. Now, you might pronounce it logos. It's, I think, more properly lagos. But lagos is a concept that was used in both the Jewish and Gentile worlds. So as John writes, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he chooses this term in order not just to address the Jews, but to address the entire Greco-Roman world. You see, for the Greeks, Lagos was a, a rational, the rational organizing principle from which everything came, a governing, impersonal force that provided order in the universe. In other words, think Star Wars. <laughs> really, that's, that's kind of what's portrayed in, the, in those films, in the film series. But again, you know, may the force be with you. Again, an a impersonal force providing order in the universe. But for the Jews, for the Hebrews, the Lagos was identified with the Word of God. In other words, the Lagos is the self-expression of the personal God who is revealed in the Old Testament. John essentially is indirectly telling this, telling us this by opening his gospel with those same words that begin the book of, the book of Genesis, in the beginning. Genesis says, in the beginning, what? God. John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John uses this term lagos to grab the attention both of the Greeks, Romans, and the Jews in order to make it clear that this is not some impersonal force, but this is the one who creates and sustains all things. He is the one who personally creates and gives meaning and purpose to all. He is the very God of the universe. Jesus Christ, the Word. He is, is the personal self-expression of God. I mean, think about it. When, when you have a conversation with somebody and you're wanting to uh, reveal who you are, you're wanting to reveal your ideas, your thoughts, your heart, what do you use? You use words, words, with words. God chose to reveal himself in the lagos, the word in Christ. <clears throat> Jesus, <clears throat> you could say this, Jesus is the literal personification <clears throat> of God's desire God's personal expression of God's desire to have a love relationship with us. And that he made it possible through the Lagos, the word. Now, uh, to the Greco-Roman world, this would have just seemed absolutely crazy. If you've done any study of uh, Greek-Roman mythology and, and, the, and, and their false gods, and you know they, they were they, they were very distant and and uh, they were were very aloof. And you know, for for for, for the Greek-Roman gods, humans were just objects to be messed with. I mean, you know, they could care less about people's well-being. And so now John is saying that the one true God is not like that at all. He doesn't just give us an occasional distanced glance from afar. The true God of the universe is a personal God who personally cares for you and me. And he chose 
to speak, to speak, to express that most definitively in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lagos, the Word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestor through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Now, John then goes on to say in verse 14, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. <laughs> this is just phenomenal. This, this is, in essence, John uh, is describing the process of incarnation, the process by which God, on that night that Jesus Christ was born, put on human flesh and started living with us. Maybe you remember the, the classic story of the, of the little girl who was asleep in her bed, just falling asleep in her bed one night, and suddenly a, a loud thunderstorm developed and big clap of thunder. I mean, she woke up startled, jumped out of her bed, raced all the way down the hallway to her parents, and they were trying to calm her down. And, and finally, her dad just scooped her up in his arms and walked her back down the hallway and tucked her back in her bed and was stroking her hair. And, and she, she finally was falling back to sleep. And all of a sudden, bang, another big loud clap of thunder. And she popped right up and threw her arms around her dad and pulled him close. And he said, he said honey, honey, it, it, it's okay. It's okay. God is going to take care of you. And she said, I know that, Daddy, but right now I need something with skin on it. <laughs> God knew that we needed something with skin. He knew we needed the Word to become flesh. We needed Jesus Christ. Now, let's take a few moments to think about the... Uh, the enormous implications of, of the incarnation. First and foremost, as, as I've already been talking about some, is that the incar in the incarnation, we see the unbelievable depth, unbelievable depth of God's love for us. Unbelievable. I mean, in one sense, the, the idea of the God of the entire universe choosing to become like us sounds just crazy, doesn't it? But in another sense, it, 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 in reality, it makes actually, actually perfect sense. I mean, if God exists, and he does, and if God is personal, and he is, then what better way to communicate his love for us and to help people understand who he is and how much he deeply cares for us and what his plan and purpose for us? How does he do that? He does that through the word, through Jesus Christ. I mean, he's God. He can do that, right? And that's what he did. This is the Christmas story that, that many people, again, they, they just don't know enough about. Well, also, because of the incarnation, we now know what God is like. No question, no mystery, no guessing or wonder or imagining. We know what God is like. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun reflects the glory of God and shows exactly what God is like. In, in that passage in John 1, the last, very last verse we read just a few moments ago, verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
A little bit later in John's gospel, chapter 14 and verse 9, anyone who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. See, everything we need to know about God, we can learn, we can know through Jesus Christ. It can be seen in him. And so we observe and we study his life and teachings and the four gospels and then the rest of the New Testament basically expounds upon all of that. God is saying to us in Christ, this is me, this is me. Well, also, because of the incarnation, we have comfort, comfort in our suffering, comfort. You see, not only does Jesus show us what God is like, but in the incarnation, it that means that he perfectly knows what we are like too. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, says that Jesus understands our weaknesses, for he faced, all of the, he faced all of the same testings that we do, and yet he did not sin. In other words, God in the flesh walked in our shoes. I mean, if you're ever tempted to think, there's, there's no way God can understand what I'm going through. I mean, he's God, and there's no way he can understand what I'm going through. Well, that is not the case. That is not so. He understands exactly what you're going through because he has been there and done that. With just one big difference, and that is in the face of his testings and trials and temptations, he never sinned. You know, most people believe that God can sympathize with our pain. But when it comes to a matter of empathizing with us, they say, no way. No way. Well, guess what? <laughs> yes way. The Word became flesh. God suffered human pain. God suffered human grief. Christmas declares that we have a God who experienced human violence and injustice firsthand. We have a God who hung upon a cross. No one knows human suffering more than God in the flesh. Well, because of the incarnation, we also have incredible hope for the future. We have the absolute certainty that we will be made whole. The enfleshment of God is the guarantee that one day all flesh in Christ will be redeemed. The Lord Jesus tells us in John 14, he says, because I live, you also will live. Plain and simple. Another powerful implication of the incarnation is that it leaves us with absolutely no doubts about the truth of the claims that Jesus made. No doubts. I mean, think about it. If Jesus is God in human flesh, then it's only logical that he would say things that no one had ever said before <laughs> or since. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the living water. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. If Mary's child is the God to whom we must all one day give an account, and he tells us that your sins are forgiven, they are. They are forgiven. If Almighty God has come to earth as one of us, and he says, follow me, then we can be absolutely 100% guaranteed that he knows exactly where he's going, and if we're smart, we better follow. And if the tiny 
the baby that Mary held in her arms was indeed God in the flesh. And no wonder the angels declare glory, glory to God in the highest. No wonder the, the shepherds immediately left and found the baby and worshiped him. No wonder the wise men traveled hundreds of miles across the Arabian desert, and the moment they finally found the child, they bowed down and worshiped him. No wonder millions and millions of people are joining us around the world worshiping him right now. No wonder millions and millions around the world will be joining us and worshiping him on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. They worship him daily in their homes. The incarnated Christ evokes our worship. And finally, this is what else it means. As a Christ follower, because you are in him and he is in you, you are in him and he is in you, there is a very real sense in which you are wearing the skin of Jesus. Have you thought about that? You see, it's not just little girls getting scared in the middle of a thunderstorm who needs something with skin on it. Many people, the only Jesus they will ever see is his skin being worn by you. The only Jesus they will ever see. Every time you reach out and you love and you serve someone in Jesus' name, you are serving them in the skin of Jesus. It's because we have that amazing privilege because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's because we have that amazing privilege because he now lives in us. Because he loved us that much. We have the privilege of seeing others get to know him as well. Because we bear the skin of Jesus Christ as we walk through this world within the circles of our influence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are always so amazed. Uh, every time we get a, a, a greater, deeper glimpse of the depth of your love for us, Lord, we thank you for the glimpse given to us in your word through this fisherman who himself was encountered by the the living Lord Jesus Christ, the Lagos, who gave his life to follow Jesus. Lord, that by the words inspired by your spirit in and through him, we have the opportunity to grasp yet just a little bit more your amazing love for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.